There are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession, and it's hard to imagine that anyone has fully ingested all there is to know about the world's most revered beverage. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. But we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. Welcome to Grape Encounters. Your host, David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time. How to have more fun with your wine. Where to enjoy wine the most. How to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. This is one of those days when I wish I had all the time in the world to spend with you and our very special guest. But alas, our time is limited, so I have to dive into this discussion very quickly. If you ask anyone in the wine world who the most influential wine critic or wine educator in the world is, there would be no deliberation. My guest today is that person. She is renowned the world over as the consummate expert on wine and arguably the most heralded author of books that can be found on the shelves of wine experts and enthusiasts far and wide. Today, I'm in Napa, California at a symposium on wine trade hosted by the Wine Institute. The guest list is a who's who of industry leaders, and the keynote speaker and guest of honor is the legendary Jancis Robinson, author of the Oxford Companion to Wine, the World Atlas of Wine, and the 24-Hour Wine Expert, among many other publications. Direct from London, Jancis is here with me now, and I want to make the most of our time together, so I'm deeply honored to welcome Jancis Robinson to Grape Encounters Radio. I just got a chance to enjoy a really informative session on trade that Jancis was part of. First of all, thank you for being here. Well, it's a, always a pleasure to come to California, especially when the weather is as good as it is, spring sunshine. So, first of all, I, I want to talk about the continuum of wine drinkers that starts with the everyday average wine drinker who sees wine as a, let's call it a beverage. Mm. And at the other end of the continuum are the folks that are drinking wines that most of us will never get to taste unless maybe we're in the business or we're filthy rich. Mm. And then everything in between. But for me, at least in talking to you know the average American, the largest group is on that bottom end of the spectrum, yet it seems like there's a terrible disconnect between the manufacturers, the producers of wine, and everybody else that, in a sense, I think keeps people down there. I think that's right. And for some reason, I think us communicators are at fault sometimes because we complicate it and we make it a little bit too elitist sometimes. I'm often asked by people who enjoy drinking wine but don't know anything about it. And they say, I I really like wine and I, I, I want to move up just one step from where I am now on the most basic sort of wine. Right. What shall I do? And of course, what I should say is read my books. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. Visit chancesrobinson.com and all that kind of thing. But actually, what I genuinely say every time is 
Form a relationship with a local wine retailer, right. preferably an independent one who can give you really sound advice rather than... And, of, and somebody that mirrors your taste, right? Well, and what you tell them is the sort of wine you have so far liked. And it's in their interests to introduce you to something that's a little bit more interesting, maybe a little bit of a better buy, but to just help you move along a bit. I see lots of parallels between wine stores and bookstores. You know, you might go into a nice independent bookstore and say, I really like this author. What can you recommend that I'm likely to like? And the person behind the counter in the wine store should be able to do that too. So I read that very comment in one of your pieces and I thought... I'm so boring. No, I thought, no, I thought that was genius. I mean, absolute genius. Because I tried after I read that to find another example of where we do that. That's the best one I think anybody's ever come up with. It's genius. <laughs> well, it's in the interests of the retailer to help you and not to con you because they can get you hooked. You know, if, if you trust their judgment, you'll come back and you'll buy more. So there's this enormous amount of wine in bottles and also sitting in tanks that's going to be sold at prices south of $10. And we do have, have a glut right now mm. of juice. But that is really the bulk of what people are drinking. The wines above, let's say, $20 and going all the way to, say, 40 For me, that's the sweet spot somewhere in the there. The best value is there, isn't right. it? Right. And I've always said there is, in wine, there is absolutely no correlation between price and quality. You know, I'm sure you know a whole load of overpriced, expensive wines. Uh, okay, so that's something I wanted to talk to you about because I sensed that maybe that might be changing for one reason, that there's so much more communication going on about wine. With the internet, everybody's now a wine critic and people They've are just... their in, apps. And, right, exactly, and they're talking about the wine more. So wouldn't it be likely that if a wine is overpriced, that that's going to be contained in those comments? I think the great majority of, people, of users of social media probably aren't drinking the really, really expensive things. But maybe the slightly overpriced in the mid-range, yeah, they might come in for um, a bit of flack. But there are a lot of drinkers who don't believe me that that there is, isn't a relation between price and quality. And sometimes if people have paid 60 or $80 for a bottle, they're jolly well going to like it because they've forked out that money. It isn't, you know. isn't that sad? Yes. That, that's really sad <laughs> to me. So going back to my continuum, okay? Yes. One of the things that I notice about wine drinkers is, first of all, the lion's share of people who drink wine but are not in the industry like us or are not wine geeks I think they feel lost, and they feel out of place. Mm. They feel inadequate. And it's sad to me because I can get in my Prius, and I have no idea. I haven't even lifted the hood. Mm. I have no idea. There could be squirrels under there, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And I don't feel a need to dissect my car. Mm. But in wine, a lot of people, I think, are made to feel that if they don't take knowledge to that level, they're inadequate and get out of here and stick with your $5 bottle from Trader Joe's. Did you see that New Yorker cartoon? It's quite an old one of somebody sitting at the dinner table after all the guests have left and looking at the empty bottles and saying, okay, they drank it, but 
did they get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know what you mean. And I, one thing I think is an enemy of making people, people feel relaxed about wine is putting too much emphasis on food and wine matching. Yes. You know, wine is complicated enough as it is without bringing in this whole other layer of, well, you met that may be a nice wine, but you're drinking it with the wrong food. If you get it down your gullet, it's not wrong, you know, and there is no thunderbolt from on high that is going to come and strike you down if by any chance you're drinking a combination that someone somewhere doesn't approve of. One of my heroes, and I think one of the bravest people in the wine industry is Tim Hanai. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who came out and said it's all BS. That was a daring thing to do, but I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes. And I also think, uh, and and I'd love to get your, your comments on this, that you know, food has changed so mm. much. Mm. It used to be that, you know, when you ate a piece of chicken or you ate a piece of fish, you knew what you were eating. But we've put so much emphasis on the sauces and the preparation. And we've got all these incredible chefs out there that and are the doing spices. amazing yeah. things that, you know, it seems that we absolutely have to disregard the protein that's under all of that yeah. flavor. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that if you do drink wine regularly, and of course you eat regularly, we probably have a little computer in our brains that we're unaware of that guides us, you know, that if we feel like eating this, we'll automatically be drawn towards drinking that on the basis of our past experience, that we're sort of building up some lost memory of what worked. And in America, something that I think is its interesting, Americans go to a nice restaurant, and the first thing that happens is the wine list is dropped on the table, and the wine order is taken even before sometimes yeah. the menu's been placed on yeah, the table. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? So the wine is really driving the meal, or is it? I don't even know if... The typical consumer is saying, I just ordered a bottle of, you know, this or that. Now I need to find something to match it. It does seem odd. I I think in Europe, it's generally they take the food order first. It's it's, it's all going to make it. Okay, we're going to come back in just a second. I want to actually scold you for keeping me up late last night. And I'll I'll explain that in just a second. My guest is Jancis Robinson. What an absolute thrill, pleasure, and privilege to have you here. Thank you very much. And you're not, you know, th- you're not scaring me either. I was, I, I thought, I, I, I bet you scare some people, right? <laughs> not that I know no? of. No? Okay. You know what set me at ease was your socks today. Yeah. That, I don't know what that color is called. Is orange. It? It's orange, yeah. yeah that, bright orange. That set me at ease. Okay, we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. Here's David. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and didn't get a lot of sleep last night, gang, because I got into my hotel room in Napa. 
Oh my gosh, what a hotel, by the way. And sitting on the counter is a book that I've wanted to see for a long time. Ta-da! There it is right here. It's a book by Jancis Robinson. It's the 24-hour wine expert. And I got in after 11 o'clock last night, and I started reading this. This is... You had 24 hours to read it in. No, no, because I was doing this interview, and I thought, I read this cover to cover last night. Well, that shows you can absorb it in less than 24 hours. Yeah, and you know what the amazing thing is? I've been doing this for decades now. I learned a lot in this book. It's just the essentials of wine. Nothing extraneous, just kind of what you need to know. I honestly think that anybody that feels like they're just lost in the wine world could read this book (laughs) and say, thank goodness for that. Thank you. Well, shall I tell you how it came about? Yes. Um, Not uh, as you intimated, you know, it wasn't obvious I would write something as relatively straightforward and for, as that. But our younger daughter was between jobs and she decided she wanted to write a guide to wine for her friends. She was 24 at the time. Really? And she did it in a very sensible way of calling focus group for all her friends, obviously giving them a bit of wine and asking them all what did they want and need to know. So she did all the research and then she got offered a job on Vogue and that was too good to turn down. But I'm from the north of England where uh, we don't waste anything. And Really? Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm not going to waste all her research. I'll turn it into a book myself. And so that's you, why you, it's... You took her very body of con- work and then yeah. and moved it forward. Yeah. How and much- then I, I wrote it and then put the text in front of her and occasionally she said, oh, mum, you can't put it that, you know, you can't say that. You can't use that word. Obviously, I was... <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's slightly a joint production between her and me, and that's why it's dedicated to Rose. She was your millennial consultant. Yes. <laughs> okay. One of the things that I didn't expect, and there's so many things like this that I didn't expect from you, but your comments on screw caps. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. In yeah. fact, I didn't tell you this, but I also have a wine bar. Mm. So I've been working for years on a sexy way to open a screw cap, which I have done. <laughs> oh, good. But there are all of these wine rituals that are disappearing, and screw caps have replaced uh, corks in so many wines, but also the alternative packaging and things that mm. we resist, those of us who are into the romantic aspect of wine. But a lot how of them do, are very sensible. Yeah, they are. But how do we get over that. You mean, how do we convince people that it's okay to drink how, wine how do from I a can? I get over it? Because I, I cringe a little bit. I, yeah. It's like, I don't want to like a wine that's in a cardboard box. But if you look at the figures and the planet and the carbon emissions, there are all sorts of very good reasons for moving away from glass bottles. I agree with that. Mm. That was another thing that I found absolutely, I guess I could say, I thought it was unlikely for you to make the comments that you did about glass bottles, mm. because I know for myself that when I pick up a heavy bottle, I'm hoping this is going to be good. But it's all, it's mostly marketing. It's mostly smoke and mirrors. I mean, there's no reason why wine in a heavy bottle should be better. I know people ask us in the industry, the most common question is, what's your favorite wine? <laughs> I cringe yeah, when I get that impossible. question. It's, you impossible know, it's what day answer. is it? What time yeah. is it? Or yeah. whatever. But it appears that you have a strong affinity for bubbles. Um, uh, that's interesting. I do like bubbles, but I just like the lot, frankly. <laughs> you like 
it all. I like it all. I certainly like whites as much as reds, and I'm, I slightly regret that somehow about 80% of the wine that I taste professionally seems to be red, but probably only 50% of the wine I drink is red. And that's so interesting because, first of all, whites are always less expensive for the most yeah, part. Yeah, poor than little reds, white. And it's not really fair it's to them. It's very unfair. And, and some white wines can last every bit as long as red wines. Are white wines more forgiving? I find them easier to taste, personally. Less, I suppose they haven't got, generally haven't got as much acid and alcohol and tannin. So if I have a choice, I'll taste the red professionally. I'll taste the red wines first and then the white wines. Interesting. Be- because I find it easier to make my perceptions of, a, of a white wines and they rinse the red off your teeth. What are some of the places that you would point people to where they can sidestep the overpriced wines? Um, I've got a Mendocino thing going at the moment. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of Mendocino because it's got some very high, cool areas. Besides Pinot? Yeah, yeah, some lovely old vines there, you know, old Zins and so on. But generally, outside in the world, I think Greece and Portugal are fantastic sources of really, really good wine that's not silly prices. How come we don't see wines from some of the great producing Eastern European... I think you will. I think you will. A lot of, after communism fell, a lot of the vineyards fell into disarray and there were lots of ownership squabbles and all that kind of thing. But in this century, there's a lot of money has been invested, not least from the EU. And I think we're just going to starting to see the results of that. Because um, I, I want to taste some Moldovan wines. I yeah. want to taste some Georgian wines. They're impossible to get just about, but yet, they? yet they make so much wine. Yeah. No, Georgia, we see quite a bit of in the UK. Okay. So last question. What's the one thing that we most need to fix in the wine industry? What are we really screwing up that needs to change? Um, I think more I'm, I'm interested in the way the industry interacts with the consumer. Yeah. What are we, what are we needs, getting wrong? It needs uh, to get a bit zappier on social media and all the kind of you know more recent ways of communicating with the consumer. It's not just about websites and bottles. Do we, need, do we need to come up with a better language to speak to people? Possibly. Uh, the term came up this morning, sustainability. Yeah. I personally hate it because <laughs> I don't think it really reflects mm-hmm. what it means. And you were talking about organic and natural and mm-hmm. how much more that resonates with consumers. Is that kind of a general problem that we're using the wrong language in many Probably cases? Probably is, yes. And I think... Probably every wine producer needs to employ someone who hardly drinks wine at all and is completely new to it Interesting. and puts everything through that filter. Interesting. <laughs> Jancis, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're, you're super busy today. The one book that I for sure am going to ask my listeners to get, which I'm sure is available on Amazon and all the usual places, and I'm not getting a commission on this, right? No, no you're not. How com- <laughs> well, how come? <laughs> but no, I, I really think... Let's start them with this book and they can work their way up to the other books. But I think if you just take an afternoon or an evening to read The 24-Hour Wine Expert, I think you're going to breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) And I also think it's a book you'll probably have to read three times because you're going to need to memorize certain things. And you've done this. It's very practical, isn't it? And you've done it in small chunks, so it's really super easy. But if you committed everything in here to memory, I'm going to tell you, being around consumers of all kinds, you're going to know more than 90% of the consumers. I think that's true. And also, if you do get just slightly more interested, you could go to jancisrobinson.com and there's a wealth of free 
background information under our learn section. Free. Free. And you write a new blog every day, is that correct? We publish two new articles every day on JancisRobinson.com. Oh, We're that's mad. awesome. We're completely mad. I'll tell you. <laughs> Jancis, thank you so much. Thanks what what a, a pleasure to have you. Gosh, I'm, I can check one thing off my bucket list. <laughs> I, are you going to be in California for a bit longer? Until uh, a week in total. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank well, you. Well, welcome to our state, and we're going to be back with more Grape Encounters in just a second. I don't know how we're going to top that, though. <laughs> back with Grape Encounters Radio, now sitting with, I, I tell you, if we had an award for David Wilson's favorite guest, she would certainly be in the top three, probably number one. She's just a pure delight to have on. From the Wine Institute, it's Allison Jordan. She's the executive director, of, first of all, the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance and vice president of environmental affairs for the Wine Institute. The longest title in in the <laughs> history, is. yeah, right. Double sided card. Yeah, so we have been having a great time here. At is it a symposium or seminar? I'm not sure. I think it's called the 2020 Export Conference. If I'm a not mistaken. Conference. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so interesting, and you know what's funny is. I am not like a symposium, conference, seminar person. Like, I generally never make it through the first half. Like, I got to go. Like, it just drives me nuts. I, this was a, a really, if you're interested in wine, and and this was about trade, but it was an edge-of-your-seat discussion. There was so many things that I hadn't thought about that now is really causing me to kind of rethink how I look at the wine industry. Well, that's what happens when you start taking a global perspective. It's quite interesting. And so many different things came out in the conversations today. Did you have some aha moments? You know, I did. Um, Of course, my focus is on sustainability. And so one of my favorite sessions just to listen and to learn was Jancis and Elaine. This morning, yes. This morning, having their dialogue. And I thought it's really interesting that they brought up climate change. And it's something that our industry has been addressing for really the last couple of decades. And sustainable practices are one way to really think comprehensively about how we can both mitigate and adapt to climate change. So I thought that was really interesting and and starting to think about how can we really communicate all that we're doing on that front because it's quite a bit. Uh, Okay, so this is, I think this is going to be a sensitive question for me to ask you because you are all about sustainability in California. Mm -hmm. And then so much of that is being copied other other places all over the world. But one of the things that came out uh, in the discussion that I found a little discomforting is the confusion uh, over sustainable versus organic versus natural versus biodynamic and really the question that was raised, which is what resonates with people? Do they really get it? It's a great question. And I think we're getting better at honing that very complex idea of sustainability so that trade and consumers can really understand. One thing I found heartening was that George Slayas from LCBO is someone who I've spent some time with trying to educate. Okay, um, you're going to have to spell out the acronym so people... The Liquor Control Board of oh, Ontario. Okay. okay, okay, good. And someone who really understands why sustainability really resonates in California. It's yeah. our authentic thing because we are addressing that very holistic set of issues from water and energy to climate change to 
our people, our, our human resources are so important. And so he understands why that's so important to us and thinks that that can be a very strong message for California wines. And so I think our next phase of really trying to hone in on these messages that really do resonate with trade and consumers is really our next step. One thing that the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance is doing is that we, um, now that we've had certification for a number of years, we're creating a very simple, but um, hopefully something that really resonates with trade and consumers, a website um, that you can also search for certified wineries, vineyards, and wines. But it also will really talk about what is sustainable wine growing right. from that perspective. But so to to untangle this just a little bit, for the person who's listening, and you guys now have a logo that appears right. on California wine bottles where the vineyards are certified sustainable. Mm-hmm. But again, for the average consumer who looks at that might go right past them. And I mean, when I think about, for instance, if we go back 20 years mm-hmm. and think of Earth Day, okay, at that point in time, anybody that celebrated Earth Day was a tree-hugging wacko, right? <laughs> and and even organic was something that was laughed at at one point. Now we're you know we're all obsessed with with what we eat. Is wine um, behind where that's concerned? Honestly. I mean, are, 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 do we still have a long ways to go for people to understand, you know, that there's something very special about this bottle? I think it's interesting. One one perspective is that the consumers already think of wine as a natural product. And so there hasn't been as much focus on that from a marketing perspective. I do think that's changing and we need to tell our story. And certification is really just one way to start that story by having that validation, that third-party verification that you are using sustainable practices and meeting stringent requirements. Um, but I think that wine is also just... Um, from again, from the consumer perspective, organic has had this history yeah. that is different than something like fresh produce, where I'll go out of my way to make sure that I'm purchasing organic produce in, in many cases. Something that was picked yesterday and, yeah. and, and grown but, organically. Yeah. Again, wine generally um, uses low impact materials. Um, a vast majority of materials applied are sulfur based, which is an organically approved material. And it, it's this broader set of issues that really matters. It's the natural resources, it's the air and water quality. It's the people on the ground who are are picking our grapes and are helping in the cellars making the wine. And so I think it's all of those things together that that is what what makes sustainability so relevant and so important. Would it be would it be safe to say that if a winery, um, a vineyard is sustainable, that it's likely that what we're drinking is of a purer nature? Is I know that's not a statement we can make unequivocally, but isn't that generally the case? The way I think about how it's linked to wine quality is the amount of attention and detail it takes right. to get certified or just to be using sustainable practices. So it is really about walking the vineyard, about monitoring pests, about making sure that you're applying the precise amount of water. So there are specific practices we know can enhance wine quality. And then I think it's that overall, again, holistic view. We often hear from wine growers, it's that chance to step back and take a, a broad view of their operations and see what they can be doing better that is the value that they see of so, being involved. So as you know, I, I think you know, I have a wine bar of my own. Yes. That we invite the Grape Encounters listeners to come to. Mm-hmm. The Grape Encounters Emporium, spelled E-M-P-O-U-R-I-U-M. Okay. <laughs> right. And I complained about uh, 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 Toys R Us using bad grammar. Anyway, um, interesting thing that I 
notice. And, you know, we carry a lot of sustainable wines there. Mm -hmm. We carry organic wines. We carry vegan wines. We carry biodynamic wines. But just going to sustainability for a second, if I tell somebody that the wine is made by a sustainable winery, they'll go, oh, that's really nice. But there's a, and this is a great example, there's a winemaker who I'm passionate about who makes a wine that when they gather up all the proceeds from the wine, they all go back to the farm workers, his workers, to give them a better life. When I tell people about that wine, they go nuts and they've got to have a bottle of it. But it's the same thing. Right. So what, what do retailers need to do to connect the dots for the consumer because I, I really feel like the term sustainability isn't a part of everybody's daily vernacular quite yet. I think that's. And I know you live it and I, and I (laughs) know you guys all created the term, right? So, but I still, I, I still wonder what's next. Well, I think there are so many different sales channels and it really would depend on what you're talking about. In your case, in a small wine bar, you know the producers, you can help share their stories. So I think one of the things that winemakers can do is, is really make sure they tell you what sustainability means to them and how they're implementing that on the ground. Are they 100% solar powered? Are they doing this type of thing with charitable contributions? Um, there are so many wonderful stories about how people are implementing this in the, their day-to-day operations. So those become the stories that people like you can use to help sell their wine. Um, I think it goes to that we find in our trade surveys that not only do the retailers and restaurant tours care, but the distributors and the wholesalers care. They're people too. So even being able to get into a certain channel, it might help for you to be able to share those stories about how you're and it's, and it is all from a, the standpoint of a retailer. It is all part of a bigger story, I, I think. But I, 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 I was really surprised by a discussion at lunchtime today where I was sitting with at least three other uh, winemakers. And all three said that when PG&E, the power company, imposed these mandatory blackouts last year, none of them had backup power, which means none of them had solar. And that was surprising to me. So there's a lot of room to improve and get better and better at this. But I know you've made like huge headway. Right. So well, where, I, where have we been and where are we going? <laughs> well, and just as an example, in that case, you really also need the battery storage. And there are some wineries that have, have done that. It's still in the early stages, but we're seeing more and more wineries who have solar also looking at that backup storage because when the power goes out, even if you've been contributing your solar power to the grid, you're not able to take it out. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's part of what hey, you're... That's not fair. <laughs> that's hey, not I, fair. I just have a couple more questions for you. We're talking to Allison Jordan from the Wine Institute. She's on everybody's favorite interviewee list. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever stop smiling? It's like, I like I like interviewing you in person because I always just like float out of the room. You're a happy person. You, you love your job though, right? I love my job. Okay, we're <laughs> going to be back with more Grape and Canis and Allison Jordan just for one, two really quick questions and then we're going to let you go. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and one of my faves, Allison Jordan, is here. By the way, if you want to hear any of my other interviews with Allison, every single one of them is on file. Did you know that? You are in the archives. I've always gone back just... 
the most recent one. I didn't know I was in a library. Oh, you're in a library. <laughs> you know, someday if we do this long enough, you'll there'll be a wing of the library for you. So there was a, a couple of interesting comments this morning that I was sort of scratching my head going, oh, and the, the first one had to do with what we put on our wine packaging. And this does have to do with your part of the business, the term vegan, first of all is when I have people come in all the time going, can you recommend a vegan wine? And I always say no, because every wine's got probably a certain number of earthworms in it and bugs, <laughs> right? And then the other thing that came up was gluten-free. And somebody said, I don't know if it was Jancis or Elaine. I think it was Jancis, but, but basically that your wine has probably always been gluten-free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people ask me that question. I, I feel totally stupid after today because people will say, is that wine gluten-free? I go, I don't know, because I'm not gluten intolerant as far as I know. So I, it's never been important to me. But for a lot of people, it is important. And they do ask. They ask, is it gluten-free? And I now know how to answer it. You learn something new every right? Day, right? But what about vegan? You know, because there's a huge call for vegan wine. But what is it do you think that the vegans are concerned about in wine that's sort of scaring them away? You know, some of it might just be misconceptions about what is in wine, um, which is basically fermented grape juice. And earthworms. <laughs> and some earthworms. A few bugs, yeah. But it could be also the fining agents that can be used. Like it could be egg whites and things like exactly. that. Exactly. So if you're a tr true vegan, you might be concerned about things like that, even though the remnants wouldn't be found in your wine. It seems to me, though, that the typical winemaker, they don't have to use egg whites. They wouldn't. I mean, why, right. why, why wouldn't why wouldn't they just do it? I mean, why, why wouldn't they just go to something that was vegan or maybe putting vegan on a bottle scares other people away? Like, I ain't going to drink none of that vegan wine. Right. Luckily, it's a big industry with lots of wine. We can service a lot of different people who have have different interests and needs. So that's a good thing. So, so wrapping up, what's in the pipeline at the Wine Institute and with any of your projects in terms of next steps? You know, we t have talked every year, I think, for at least, I'm going to say, seven or eight years about sustainability and you have sustainability month and we always do a number of stories. Is there something new coming that you can preview? Sure. So two, oh, you do have two one. things. Oh, good. Talk about. One is that we just published our 2019 sustainability report. That's all about our certified sustainable vineyards and wineries. And we now have 85% of all of California wine being made in a certified sustainable winery. Wow. Which is just really impressive. 85% of all of California wine. And then about 30% of our acres are certified California sustainable to the program that I manage, but another 15%. So we're getting close to half of all of California's wine grape acreage being certified to our program to Lodi Rule, SIP certified, or Napa Green. So it's just something that we're seeing continued interest and in growth. That is really something. So it does beg the question, though, there are certain parts of California where there are grapes being grown commercially in massive quantities that go into what I affectionately call tanker truck wines. You know, there there's so much juice that is created on these properties. Do they care as much? The, the big ones, do they care? So yes, we actually, I mean, one of the reasons we have that large 85% number is because most of the, the large California wineries are certified, um, sustainable, and most of the, the acreage that they own is also certified. Um, and we're seeing an uptick really around the state. So Sonoma just recently announced that they got to their 
almost to their 100% goal, got 99% of the way there for certified sustainable vineyards. But we're seeing that in general, acreage is growing all over the state. Are, are, so. are the folks in Sonoma going to turn over to Napa and do a na 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 Napa's on their way too. So. Napa, Napa's yeah. on their way as well. Well, you know, now that I think about it, I think maybe I asked a stupid question. Because when you think about that acreage, for instance, in the Central Valley, so much of that is Gallo and big producers like them. And in a way, those companies, not just in a way, those companies are really innovators in sustainable practices. And a lot of people tend to think, well, if the wine's cheap, then they probably don't care so much. But the reality is, is that every winemaker in the country, but in the world will tell you that if it weren't for Gallo and companies like that, that had the money to invest, we wouldn't have the quality wines we have now. We wouldn't have the safe wines that we have right now. So it really is the big ones that are carrying the torch. It's another example of a theme of the day, which is collaboration. It's something that's really, I think, unique about the California wine industry, that we do have so much peer-to-peer exchange of information, really this idea that we can lift all ships. And so Gallo and other larger wineries that have research and other resources that they're able to share with the rest of the industry really has been a huge, tremendous help. And they've been involved with our sustainability efforts from the beginning. So I don't think we would be where we are today without those resources. And at the same time, having hundreds and thousands of small vineyards and wineries engaged in sustainability is also just really exciting. That's such an important point that you make about collaboration. And I can only think of one example outside of the wine industry that really sticks with me. And it's when Elon Musk turned over basically all the patents Mm. for Tesla to any auto manufacturer that wanted them because he thought that it was in the best interest of the world. Yes. And how we spur change. And you know what? There aren't many companies that do that, right? Instead, Apple and Samsung will just duke it out until hell freezes over. Hey, listen, I sure appreciate, first of all, you guys inviting me up here because I had a, it's something different for me. I'm usually very much with the, the largest group of the consumers, but this is so important. And also this event that we've been at today is all about in large part exporting to other countries, which is really important to our economy. It's very important. And interestingly, some of our top markets, Canada, the UK, Japan, are also very interested in sustainability. And so it's an important topic that we've heard come up in almost every session today. And and then one last, last little detail that we got to end it on this. I think it's a very positive note. You and I have been talking a lot over the past year about tariffs, and the tremors that were sent through the wine industry about the possibility of a 100% tariff was something that had everybody way freaked out. And doesn't look like that's going to happen, at least for the moment. Is that right? So I believe so, if, if I'm thinking of the same instance you are. But it's a topic that Wine Institute and my colleagues in Washington, D.C. deal with on a daily basis. You can't turn your back. Really trying to make sure that we have markets that are open and free and, and um, our, our wineries are able to sell their wine all over the world with as little obstacles as possible. And Allison Jordan, Executive Director of the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance and VP of Environmental Affairs for the Wine Institute. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters. All right, we'll be back here next week with more Grape Encounters. Thanks for listening, gang. Thanks for listening, gang.